Welcome to another edition of Perception Reception. I'm very pleased that today I'm joined by John Podesta. John, among many other things, is founder and a member of the board of directors of the Center for American Progress. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in this conversation. But John was also White House Chief of Staff to President Bill Clinton from uh, 1998 through January of 2001. And he was co-chair of President Barack Obama's 2008 transition team and later served as counselor to President Obama and coordinated that administration's climate policies and initiatives. And, oh, by the way, John also chaired uh, Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign. I, I think a good starting place is actually sort of a starting place, John, which is that uh, you and I were both part of Gene McCarthy's 1968 campaign, Clean for Gene. Um, and 68 was certainly a really traumatic year. Uh, you know, you had the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, we had riots after Dr. King's assassination, constant and huge protests over the Vietnam War. Uh, you had the protests, riots, and police overreaction at the 68 Democratic Convention in Chicago. And so I'm, I'm just wondering, uh, I, I have a lot of people say to me, well, you know, what we're experiencing now in 2020 isn't really new because, you know, take a look at 68, and, and there are some similarities but there's also huge differences. And I was wondering what your take was on that. First of all, it's great to be with you, Rick. And of course we go back to those days because we did some events together, rally in, in Watts in, in Los Angeles in 1968, just before the Democratic primary in California, the day of that primary, of course, that evening, uh, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. So uh, the country was definitely in turmoil big social divisions over the war. By 1968, people had soured on the war, but there was still obviously a uh, clash between people like McCarthy, who wanted to end it, and both supporters of President Johnson, uh, vice president, former Vice President Nixon, who wanted, you know, who famously had a secret plan to end the war. Uh, that was the fulcrum, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the desire for change, particularly amongst young people in the country, was the fulcrum in which politics turned. A lot of people got engaged in electoral politics that year, starting with McCarthy and then uh, after Johnson dropped out, just before the Wisconsin primary and, and Bobby Kennedy jumped in, the more people joined the uh, because they either wanted to stick with McCarthy, who had really been the person who was leading the charge against the war or wanted, you know, thought Bobby Kennedy was more likely to, to uh, beat uh, Lyndon Johnson. And, you know, he had the support of African-Americans across the country because he had done a lot for civil rights. He was trying to knit together uh, a kind of a working people's coalition of white and black McCarthy was kind of maybe the Bernie <laughs> of the day. Yeah, he sure was that. <laughs> um, you know, he was kind of, uh, he, not in style, but in 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 kind of the people he was attracting right. to, to get engaged in politics. But that was, I think maybe your start is certainly my start uh, in electoral politics. Of course, we didn't win. Uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey was the nominee, went on to be defeated by Nixon. The next campaign I did was actually in 1970 in the state of Connecticut, 
the kind of anti-war crowd had moved on to working in congressional elections. And I was working for a guy named Joe Duffy. That's the first time I met Bill Clinton. He was a student in at uh, Yale Law School. Uh, I had a habit. I went to Knox College in Western Illinois. I had a habit of kind of bouncing out of college whenever there was a good election to be working in. I went off to, to Connecticut and I was, he was kind of running that congressional district around New Haven. I was, had, was working in a congressional district in Northeast uh, Connecticut, but, you know, we, we were at least friendly. I mean, that, we weren't, uh, we stayed in touch over the years. And then when he uh, was running, I kind of helped out there. And then when he became president, I was uh, fortunate enough to go to the White House with him. What, what, what do you feel are the, is maybe the biggest difference between sort of the, the trauma of 68, John, and what's clearly the trauma of, of 2020, although you may feel that there are more similarities than there is a, a difference? I think the country in some ways is even more culturally divided than it was then. The, the roots are deeper and then the, the sort of politics of Trump are different. You know, I obviously wasn't a big fan of Richard Nixon's, but Trump is even more authoritarian, more, you know, plays fast and loose with the truth. We thought Nixon was bad. He got impeached. He got, you know, he had to resign from office. He abused his office. But I think uh, Trump doesn't have any sense of where the limits or boundaries are. You know, there are some... I guess some similarities uh, in that there was racial division then, there's racial division now, uh, there was injustice and inequity then that uh, has not been attended to and resolved and we haven't, you know, struck at the heart of institutional racism. I think people were, I don't know, a, a, an emotional sense of that the country had gone really wrong uh, in Vietnam there was still more hope that the country could right itself. The experience of the civil rights movement, the peaceful nonviolent resistance, coupled with the passage of the Voting Rights Act and and the Civil Rights Act in '64, you know, people I think felt like, well, maybe if we just all kind of worked harder at it, we could make the country, you know, put it on a better path. Now the clash seems more tribal, more, uh, to me, I don't know, uh, more almost kind of like if you look overseas, more sectarian, the tribes are just going at each other's uh, with such a vengeance. You know, Biden is interesting because he he tries to bridge that. He tries to point back to a time when America could be re-knit. Of course, that's what Obama ran on. That's what Clinton ran on. In some ways, that's even what George W. Bush ran on. That's what sort of compassionate conservatism was about. I didn't, you know, again, I I disagree with him on policy and thought that, you know, his economic policy favored the wealthy and this and that. But you're kind of going back to those days to H.W. Bush. People were trying to bring the country together. Uh, I think I'm going to stick on this Bush point for a second because people might disagree with me, but Bush was as much running against Gingrich as Gore or Gingrich as Clinton. Um, You know, Gingrich was the original politics of complete division. You know, what sometimes we today refer to as base politics, but it's really, it's the politics of anger, of fear, of tribalism. 
And Trump's an inheritor of that. And, and in a way, at least in 2000, Bush was trying to sort of do a course correction on Gingrich, because I think he saw that as a kind of dead end for the Republican Party. But it wasn't a dead end. I mean, it was a it was the embers were burning uh, on that politics of hate. You know, neither neither McCain or Romney were particularly good standard bearers for that perspective. But uh, Trump really relit those embers. And, you know, now it's burning bright in in the country and, and in our politics. And, you know, it's taken to a whole new level because of the effect of social media and the division that particularly Facebook, but the whole social media landscape profits off of by, you know, through the strength of these algorithms that breed hate, disinformation. You could think of the cookie QAnon theories as being kind of at the extreme, but that ripping a part of the fabric of society has been going on. And it's been particularly uh, the battlefield for that probably has been really in, in the hate that's spewed um, in some of those social channels. I want to, before we move on to your work uh, with the Center for American Progress, I want to stick with the polarization and tribalism for a moment. You know, like I think other Democrats, uh, you know, I celebrate the fact that in addition to urban areas that we have made really good headway in suburban areas as well, and particularly with women in suburban areas. But I, I think there has sort of been a myth that's grown that if you know you can just get a big enough vote out of the cities and, and the suburban areas, and, and I have to add collar counties to that as well, because uh, I take a look I'm in the greater Chicago area, and I see um, evidence that some of the collar counties are becoming more democratic uh, than they were. But I, I worry that, that in that process, we sort of have isolated ourselves, isolated our party from uh, small towns and rural areas. I mean, you know, I worked for two presidents and Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton, we're working with you, uh, John, uh, where we did a lot of stuff in small, town and, uh, small towns and rural areas. I remember, um, you know, w w being with Carter and doing uh, advanced work in, in Erie, Pennsylvania and Beaver County, places we're hearing a lot about now. And, uh, you know, uh, God, Bill Clinton, you know, Mason City, Iowa, La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, you name it. And um, do we need to do more as a party to reconnect with some of those small towns and rural areas? Yeah, I remember freezing my ass off one time after the day after the State of the, of the Union in Quincy, Illinois. So, yeah. <laughs> It was, uh, and then we went to, well, that was, I think, a different a year, but we yeah, had we did a event in lacrosse. We had 25,000 people yeah. in the middle of the winter out on Main Street. You know, that was the magic of Bill Clinton. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I think we can't ignore any part of the country, do that at our peril. And we do that at the peril of the unity of the country, too, I think, not just at our political peril. You know, there was, I think, a, a sense that particularly as the economy became so much more powered by tech, by finance, by what the fancy people would call knowledge work, that people felt like they, they were being left behind. They didn't, have a they didn't have a place. And they were working hard and they were doing meaningful work. The, the connection was severed. And 
I think Biden's done a pretty good job of trying to go back and redo that. You know, those places that Hillary lost in 2016 that were in, like, for example, you know, the, the famous Pennsylvania Tea or places like that. You know, I think Biden's not going to win those places, but I think he's going to try to cut the margin there. He spent he's he has spent time there, and of course, he his story is one that I think his his narrative, what he's about, who he is as a person, the fact that he's been a politician who's always been about helping working people, the middle class. He's from Scranton, you know, kind of grew up in a smaller working class community in 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 Delaware. That idea that he gets you, gets what your struggle is, wants to help create jobs of the future. Biden's put out some very exciting policy and plans and ideas about how to make the economy more fair, how to attack the racial justice crisis, how to attack the climate crisis. But I think fundamentally, this is a race about character. And Trump has tried to rip Biden apart with very little success. The Republican machinery, and I think a little bit aided by by the mainstream media, was able to tear down Hillary to the point where she was underwater. And that gave him the ability to, even though he lost by 3 million votes, he was able to pick up the Electoral College largely by overperforming in the places where you were just talking about. Biden's been less susceptible to that because I think people just think he's a good guy. <laughs> they like him. And I think they think, you know, he's a person who's pretty much right there. You know, you, you can see what, what he's like, you know, who he's for, you know, who he's fighting for. I think adding Senator Harris has added some excitement to the ticket. Coming out of the primaries, you know, he had a problem with younger voters in the sense of not so much that they were voting for Trump, but the, their enthusiasm was was low. I think that's partly because of the ideas and policies and, you know, the embrace of racial justice and climate justice and uh, environmental justice has kind of enlivened what he's about and, and been appealing his, you know, willingness to tackle student debt and work with Senator Warren and that, that kind of stuff. But I think it's mostly just that they see him as a real person and, you know, get, got more excited when when uh, Senator Harris was added to the ticket. Well, I, I was excited to see that he, um, and, and it lifted my heart to see him go to Manitowoc, Wisconsin, which was the home of my wife. Uh, she was born in Manitowoc, a, a town about 30 miles away from Green Bay. And uh, I, I was very happy to see him make that trip there. Uh, I think that shows a, a real new sensitivity to some of those small towns and the surrounding rural areas. So hopefully that's the wave of the future for our party and our leaders. Well, and you, and we won some of those, you know, I mean, we won a lot of suburban seats in 2018, but we won some of those, you know, somewhat mixed seats, Collar County, I think you call them, that are stretched out into the rural communities. And there's, you know, there's big differences. I mean, uh, Illinois never got as right wing as some of the other states. I think even in, uh, I mentioned I went to went to college in Galesburg, you know, it's represented by Sherry Bustos. Yep. Uh, it had a Republican congressman for a couple of terms, I guess, but Lane Evans represented that area for a long time. And I don't know, it seems to me whatever is in the Il- Illinois water is a little bit more conducive to people caring about each other and kind of being having an appeal from 
kind of progressive perspective. Obviously, it was what kindled then State Senator Obama's rise to win the Senate seat and then carry him to the presidency. You know, he, he got that. He was attentive to the politics downstate. I think he found a way to work with everybody in the state Senate, but he always went kind of back to these places um, and gave a foundational economic speech in Galesburg, went back there when he was president, because I think he knew that we needed to keep the community together. You know, that was always his politics. And I think always his kind of magic. Now, some people rejected him, maybe because of his policies, maybe because of his race, whatever, uh, maybe just because they're, you know, <laughs> tribally Republican, I don't know. But uh, when I saw him in, in Philadelphia campaigning for, for Vice President Biden at, at that car rally where everybody was yeah. talking the horn, yeah. I mean, he's so good. <laughs> it was like, you know, you couldn't help but thinking, can we repeal the 22nd Amendment? <laughs> I, 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 I turned on because I knew he was speaking. I watched him. Uh, also at a speech down in, in Florida. And I, I was going to just catch a few, you know, bits of it, and I couldn't turn it off. <laughs> I just enjoy listening to him so much. Uh, he really is a unique uh, political personality and a, just a wonderful human being. I, I know, um, I mean, 10 years ago, when my wife, when Judy passed away, the first call I got was from Barack Obama. And I've forgotten that. Uh, I wanted to dig into a few policy areas and, and particularly uh, the, the work of the Center for American Progress. I mean, we work in, in some of these big policy areas like healthcare, education, uh, climate. Uh, and, and so, uh, I mean, right now you have systemic problems, healthcare, racial disparities, pre-existing conditions. Uh, and it's been exacerbated by the way that the pandemic's been handled in the U.S. We have education and, you know, what COVID is doing to student learning and, and questions about what education is going to look like uh, down the road post-COVID and climate change, where, I, I, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us are concerned, is there still hope? I mean, yeah. you know, uh, or, or have we crossed the line uh, to a point of no return? I know that you... Uh, and the Center for American Progress are working on a lot of these priorities. And I, I, I think it would be really interesting and important for people to hear your perspective on, on that as uh, the founder and, and, and a director of the center. Yeah, well, uh, maybe I'll start with climate change because that's what I'm personally working on so much. We, you know, obviously the center has a major program. I'm involved with other efforts that reach out and create coalition amongst environmental groups, amongst environmental justice groups, amongst the kind of new spirit of activism uh, that's going on. And I think this is, this is it for climate change, this election. If there's anything more on the ballot, I don't know what it is. And if there's an issue where there's more difference, I'm not sure I could, I could point to it. Because Trump remains basically a climate denier. He's reversed a hundred health and safety regulations, virtually everything President Obama tried to do. He is now kind of trying to end the campaign running, put, you know, his money comes uh, very heavily, probably his biggest source of campaign funds comes from 
the fossil fuel industry put coal lobbyists in charge of the interior and EPA, the interior department, EPA. He's just been a disaster, completely ignoring what is now we're feeling, you know, this isn't a 30 year from now problem. This is a right today problem. We see it uh, in the fires in Colorado, uh, the conditions in California, which has suffered all so much already this season are now conducive to this is the worst part of the fire season in California, notwithstanding all the things we say, the hurricanes on the Gulf Coast, the increased mortality and morbidity from you know extreme heat and other things. We have got to solve this problem and get on with it. And instead, he just ignores uh, the, what the experts say, as he did, did with COVID. It's very kind of similar in that sense. And uh, in contrast, Biden, I think, has really become... Uh, stepped up on it from the primaries to till the summer. You know, he very much expanded his commitment to make major investments in transforming the economy from fossil fuel based to, to clean energy to call for $2 trillion of investment. Uh, he's called for a net zero economy by 2050, uh, a 100% clean power sector by 2035. That's all doable. We have the technology to do most of that work. We still have some innovation and invention to do, particularly in manufacturing, some, some of these harder to decarbonize sectors, as it were. Um, and he's called for major uh, investments in, in that innovation cycle as well. But you gotta have the will to do it. And in his case, you also have to have the Democratic Senate <laughs> to do it. Right. Because, because yes. I think if Mitch McConnell's still the leader, it's going to be hard to get that $2 trillion appropriated, as it were, or uh, put through through what's referred to as budget reconciliation. But he's, he's championed the cause. He's put equity right at the heart of it. I, I think one of the things that uh, Biden did a very good job of this summer was understanding, linking, and talking about the four crises, the crises the country's experienced. The COVID crisis and healthcare crisis that was probably pre-existing COVID, uh, but clearly the COVID crisis, the economic crisis that the, uh, the mishandling of COVID is wrought, the climate crisis and the racial justice crisis. And so uh, he is paid a lot of attention to both reducing pollution in the communities that have been most affected and making investments and the job creation that's attendant to that, that goes with it, the millions of jobs really that could be created in, the, in this new economy. That's the irony, John, is that this could be a huge, not only to kind of save our planet, but a, a huge engine for job creation and innovation. Absolutely. So it really is the next big thing. And I think it, you know, it can put people back to work at every level, you know, in manufacturing, in installation, in innovation, in engineering, in uh, business creation. And, you know, and those jobs can be well-paid jobs, union jobs. And, you know, as long as there's strong job standards that go with it, which he's pledged to do. Uh, but like I said, you kind of need some help from the Congress to, to get that much done. Obama did a lot in the face of a Republican Congress. Uh, Trump has tried to reverse a lot of it. Courts have stopped him in, in many regards, but another term would give him a, you know, a 
chance to kind of finish the devastation that he's begun. Uh, but I think Biden goes the other way. Uh, but 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 I like I said, I think he needs some help from Democrats because you know McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate aren't going to help him very much. But I, you know, I am optimistic that he he can do that. I think if he does, you need the you need to do the work at home to be credible abroad. And I think that was really, that was what was so thrilling about working with President Obama when, at the period that I did. We were just doing a lot domestically, the clean power plan, changing auto efficiency standards, building efficiency, you know, uh, appliance efficiency standards, uh, reducing methane emissions, reducing uh, hydrofluorocarbons, which are super polluting uh, refrigerants, replacing them with safer chemicals. You know, we we're just doing a lot here, but that gave him credibility to bring together the world and the personal diplomacy that he put to work with China, with India, with Mexico, with Canada, with the EU, that brought together uh, the Paris Agreement. It wouldn't happen. It really would not have happened without the president's kind of, you know, particularly personal efforts to push China to do more, to push India to do more, to get them to stop being drags on finding a common purpose. Now, it wasn't enough. The Paris Agreement itself always, people knew it wasn't enough. There was a mechanism to ratchet up ambition to, for, you know, kind of more for more. And you saw that the, with the uh, EU just, you know, is ratcheting up its 2030 commitment on emissions reductions. Also, its whole recovery, its whole job strategy is built around a green recovery and the Green Deal, as they call it in Europe. China just announced it would go net zero by 2060 with uh, President Xi's speech at the UN General Assembly. India is going gangbusters on uh, deployment of renewables. You know, they've still got a lot of coal in their system as to China, but, but they're pushing. Uh, they made a pledge to be 40% renewable by 2030. Uh, their power minister just said, we're going to get close to 60% by 2030. So, you know, we got to work together. Uh, these cycles of innovation also help lower the price. You know, you see that effect that you see in most technology sectors uh, was never true in the fossil sector. But in solar wind, you see this like a Moore's Law style effect where it keeps getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, solar is cheaper than, than gas now uh, in terms of new generation. Renewables and, and storage will be cheaper than, than even the kind of fancy uh, gas with carbon capture and sequestration. So that's virtuous cycle of restoring our planet, dealing with the biodiversity crisis, dealing with the, with the climate crisis. And I think Biden's very committed to it. I'm, I'll just do a couple of minutes on healthcare and, and education. On healthcare, look, I mean, Biden's trying to expand the ACA, build on it, make it better, reduce the price of prescription drugs, get more people into Medicare by lowering the age, expand Medicaid, and tackle the high price of prescription drugs. What's Trump trying to do? Repeal the ACA in the Supreme Court. You know, in the middle of a pandemic, their idea of a good idea is throw 15 million people out of health care, cut back on uh, Medicaid, uh, and, the, and the protection for pre-existing conditions, tell 
young people who are under 26 or having to struggle in this economy as it is. They can't stay on their parents' uh, health insurance system as the ACA provides for. You know, it is just so infuriating. Uh, Biden sort of nailed Trump in the second debate. You know, where's the plan? There is no plan. There is no plan. There never has been plan. No. <laughs> and, but we face that. And, you know, look, I think that they're going to, they're going to blow a hole in the side of the ACA, whether they repeal the whole thing or not. I don't know. What about you were going to say something about education? Yeah, education. Look, I mean, my um, oldest daughter is actually an elected school board member in Northern California. And she's the one person in the family that actually decided to run for something. And um, <laughs> so I, I, I lived through her struggles of trying to get a, she's in the East Bay in, in Northern California, uh, you know, mixed population, a lot of, Latino kids in the, in the school district, smaller percentage of, of African-American children. But, but a, lot of, a lot of kids, you know, black, white, and brown, Asian, they don't have access, you know, it's sort of a middle-class suburb, but, they, but it's, uh, a lot of kids don't have uh, a- access to broadband. Uh, they don't have, now the, the district is kind of trying to supply at least laptops to all the students, et cetera. But remote learning, I think, has really profound disproportional effects on people who are kind of starting off without the kinds of uh, support that middle class and upper middle class families have already. Uh, so they start off, uh, uh, you know, with a, with a brick in their pack, as it were, and now yeah. this has made it worse. I think. Teachers are doing heroic efforts to try to adjust to this. They have to worry about their safety, their family's safety. And every time a district sort of gets ready to go back, there seems to be one step forward and two steps back as we're seeing yep. the, the uh, COVID surge again. What does, that, what does that mean going forward, particularly for the federal government? Well, look, it means that we've got to do a better job of targeting resources to deal with these educational disparities, making sure that uh, teachers are fairly paid, that, that but right now that state and local budgets get some relief from the federal government. They're all under balanced budget requirements, basically, or almost all of them are. And so they're going to have to lay off teachers, you know, withdraw support. Uh, that's why I think this fight that's going on that Speaker Pelosi is led and is in negotiation with Mnuchin on uh, to try to get some relief for state and local governments so that we're not laying off firefighters, first responders. Uh, you know, we, we applaud them when they go to work out of windows, uh, as we saw in New York, uh, and then we don't give any support to them. That's kind of crazy. And we need to support the young people, and particularly, you know, the, it's so important in these in these early grades and early uh, age groups that, uh, you know, I just think there's no question that students are falling behind, and we need to uh, do more. Caps proposed creating like a national service corps of putting young people, many of whom have had trouble getting started in their careers, uh, to work as tutors in both in school and and at home. Uh, to try to do the really important work of of giving support to kids who you know often uh, have lack of resources, whether that's broadband computers, right. so that they can at least try to 
uh, not fall further behind and try to catch up. And then on, on, on healthcare, in addition to COVID, I think the, one of the things the COVID thing, COVID-19 has exposed is the great discrimination that we have in our country, the disparities in healthcare. Which, which has been there for decades. Absolutely. Um, and which we, um, you know, really, really, really need to attack. I think that the real focus on this really did first occur in the Clinton administration with the president, Don Shalala and others, really focusing on the different outcomes that people were receiving right. and trying to, you know, again, do interventions that were going to, we're going to help in that regard. Uh, uh, you know, I, in, in, during Clinton expanding the children's health insurance program, then that got expanded some more as part of ACA, the passage of the ACA, uh, making primary care essentially uh, uh, free from out-of-pocket expenses so that uh, people could get more wellness and less uh, acute care in the emergency room, which has been the experience of a lot of poor people. I have to, uh, we're, we're out of time. I have to ask before we, we finish, John. The, 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 you were uh, presidential chief of staff and uh, I have to believe that some days you just shake your head at uh, what is going on in the relationship between Trump and his numerous chiefs of staff that have come and gone. And I, I just, I, I couldn't have our conversation end without asking your, your view of that, of the well, role. The people who have served there, because they've always, <laughs> they've all left with their reputation sort of shattered uh, with the possible exception of uh, Jared and Ivanka, I guess, I don't know. You know, you can't try to ensure that you're leading a staff, you're creating accountability and discipline, and you're filling in for the president's weaknesses in essence and trying to enhance their strengths. Uh, with, with Trump, it's just so chaotic. That's an impossible task. You know, he loses, he has no loyalty to his staff, sort of in reverse, the staff seems to have no loyalty to him. There are more books written by people in this White House than I've ever seen before in any, amongst every, any president. Uh, but it is just, it's just about him. He has no regard for the office. Uh, I just watched the Pete Souza documentary. And, to and Pete would work for Reagan and he worked for Obama. And to listen to his pain in describing kind of the, really the reverence for what it means to have the privilege of serving the American people in those roles and what Trump has done to denigrate that is really, it's a great, it's actually a great documentary and it's fun to see all the pictures. <laughs> yeah, well, but, and, and, and by the way, I remember, uh, you know. You gotta get them on the podcast. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Whether it was you or um, Leon or Erskine or Mac, uh, I, I remember you always would tell the president uh, news that sometimes he didn't want to hear uh, and I, I just uh, sometimes laced with a lot of four-letter words. <laughs> but you know, this is if you're the president, you need to hear that tough talk sometimes. 
And uh, you guys never shied away from doing that. And yeah, now they hide intelligence from him because they think he's going to go nuts. Yeah, I know. It's just, uh, it's yeah. insane. I always say, I, you know, I still, I still teach and uh, students ask me, how do you speak truth to power? And I say, it's extremely important to have a spouse that works because <laughs> if, they, if they kick your ass out the door, at least, you know, the children will be fed that night. <laughs> Well, and that's a, a perfect note to end on. And and uh, and please do uh, give my best to your spouse, to Mary. And uh, I will. Um, uh, thank you, John, for giving of your time. Fifty-two years ago, man, we were out there. <laughs> I know it, it is hard to believe. I tell you, it really is. That's yeah, a fun time. Here we are. And let's let's hope that there are bright days ahead for all of us. Great.